we believe that what originally was considered a kind of post-materialist fancy of some city dwellers, well-educated, earning above the average, a bit weird, overly left-wing or whatever, has turned into the material precondition for a successful future of our societies. Across most of Europe, Green Parties are middling political forces, occasional junior partners in coalitions or protest votes for disgruntled left-wing voters. And yet, at the heart of Europe, in the prosperous Germany, the Green candidate Annalena Berbock could well be Angela Merkel's successor at the Chancellorship. Born in 1980 following the major environmental and anti-nuclear protests of the past decade, these staunch anti-capitalists wanted to shake Germany up by abolishing the Bundeswehr and leaving NATO. Fast forward to today, and the Green Party has become an established actor in Germany's political landscape. In 10 of the 16 German landers, the Greens are junior coalition partners with the far left, the Social Democrats, the Liberals, or the centre-right Christian Democrats. And since 2011, they even lead the coalition in the traditionally conservative state of Baden-Württemberg, a proof that the once French party has the capacity to seduce even traditionally right-wing voters. With the upcoming federal election next September, it seems very likely they will make a grand return to the federal government, perhaps even as a senior partner in a coalition. How do we explain this green surge, and what could it mean for German and European politics? To answer these questions, we are glad to have back with us a veteran Green Party member and MEP, Reinhard Butikofer, and the German Marshall Fund's Deputy Director of the Berlin office, Suda David Wilp. But before we go, Uncommon Decency needs you. If you find this show interesting and happen to like us enough to come back every week, we would love your support. You can really help us a ton by writing a review, subscribing, and most importantly, sharing the show around with people you think would enjoy it too. Don't forget, if you want to reach out or share your ideas for future episodes, you can reach us at our Twitter page at UndecencyPod or by email with UncommonDecencyPod at gmail.com. Now, on to the show. Fantastic. To talk about this topic, we're so very glad to have with us Suda David Wilp. Sudo, you're the Deputy Director of the Berlin Office of the German Marshall Fund and a Senior Transatlantic Fellow. You cover extensively German politics and the US-German relation in various publications, including Foreign Policy, CNN and Axios. Reinhard Brutikofer, you're a German politician and sitting MEP for the European Green Party. You first became an elected official for the Green Party in 1984 and rose to become co-leader of the Alliance 90 of the Greens Party between 2002 and 2008. So you've seen the party pretty much from its infancy to today. You're also a returnee on the show. We had you with Francois Godemont for episode 14 on the EU's investment agreement with China, which we highly recommend everyone gives a listen to. Let's get right into it. The Green Party was founded in 1980. It was growing out of the anti-nuclear, the pacifist, the environmental protests of the 60s and 70s. But if someone just woke up from a 40-year-long coma, they would really struggle to recognize that protest party of the 1980s with a party that has become today. 
It's often said that the realos, the more realist wing, have hijacked the party from the fundies, the more traditional left-leaning uh, base. But Reinhardt, can you walk us through this evolution from the French protest party to what is now a serious contender for the chancellorship? Well, that's a good question. I mean, how much time do we have? How many <laughs> hours can I spend? Uh, I would say, earnestly, I would say, if, if somebody had missed the the last 40, 40 years or so, they would still recognize the party for two major reasons. The party has always been driven on one hand by its engagement for um, caring for the public good, in particular dealing with environmental and climate challenges. Even in the first um, basic platform of the party at a time when nobody spoke about climate change, the Greens already addressed climate change as an important issue. And on the other hand, the party has also always been uh, defending individual liberties, individual freedom, emancipation, caring for the rights of minorities. So this dual set of motivations has been driving the Green Party and still is. And of course, in the meantime, we, we uh, uh, underwent a, a number of uh, transformations. Originally, the party thought of itself as an anti-party party. It didn't want to be like all the other parties. It was uh, strong in, in uh, opposing uh, the prevalent uh, notions of how to do politics. It didn't want to have professional politicians in its own ranks. It, um, it emphasized a lot um, the need to, to, to pose the big questions that were ignored by uh, the mainstream parties at the time. So for instance, apart from uh, from climate and, and uh, environment and, and anti-nuclear. Uh, we also, um, uh, from the very beginning, had a very strong plank with regard to gender issues. Uh, uh, that was ridiculed at the beginning by all the other parties. So we were the voice that insisted that some topics that had went uh, unnoticed or um, ridiculed uh, should figure in the political arena. That was the first phase. And then in the second phase, the party started to understanding to understand that it's not enough just to raise big issues. You also have to try demonstrating that you can contribute to practical solutions. So that's when the party started looking into um, building coalitions, um, in, in almost all of these cases, we were just the junior partners. So, so the, the challenge was how can you make an impact um, as a junior partner in a political coalition government, the first of which uh, we entered in uh, the state of Hesse uh, with Joschka Fischer as our first uh, state minister. And, and that went all the way up uh, to the federal level when uh, between 1998 and 2005, 
we were in government together with the Social Democrats under the chancellorship of Gerd Schröder. And in the 15 years since, the, the second big transformation of the party, I would say, has been that now it is not anymore just um, a minor voice, uh, just a correcting factor. Today, we believe that we are prepared to lead the nation, to, to be a polar force that, that newly defines what progressive policies entail. Can you walk us through this kind of internal tensions of a party, the very kind of activist left-wing base, to become a kind of more centrist governing party? Um, there's often talks about how the, the Riellos and the Fundis have have fought this out and in the end the Riellos have won. Sorry, I, I think it, it was more complicated than that. Mm. Uh, there were, one of the founders of the party was a uh, uh, a conservative member of CDU who was so much uh, engaged in nature conservancy issues that that he grew uh, um, uh, dissatisfied with Helmut Kohl's party and left and joined the Greens. So, so there were very um, diverse elements from the very beginning. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, Reinhard gave a very good description of the development um, of the Green Party over the last couple of decades in Germany. I actually had the opportunity when I was in grad school to meet with Joschka Fischer, um, mm -hmm. and he was telling me about how you know his sort of rock throwing days in the you know late sixties and. As Reinhardt mentioned, you know, the Green Party has transformed over the years. This is a mainstream party for German voters. And the party had a chance to prove itself that it can govern on a federal level from 1998 to 2005, as Reinhardt mentioned, when um, Joschka Fischer was foreign minister and wearing Armani suits and left his stone throwing days behind. So, you know, I think, yes, there is perhaps still this tension between the um, the, the so-called fundies and the realos. And, but over the years, just look at Reinhard Budikofer, who used to be the chairman of the Green Party, and to Cem Özdemir, to um, now um, Annalena Baerbock, uh, um, also leading the party, mind you, um, co-chairing these party the party over the years, that um, moderation is needed for a party that can govern and has proven to be able to govern both on a federal level and today in a majority of the federal states in Germany. But I do wonder about um, how it will all play out. We saw the tensions last weekend during the party convention with 3,000 amendments. Um, I'm sure Reinhard didn't, was not envious of <laughs> the position of Annalena Baerbock and Robert Habeck uh, last weekend to go through these amendments and to find cohesion within the party. And depending on the crop of new Bundestag members that come into parliament after this election, we will see how um, party leadership can make sure that um, unity is held when um, the party is perhaps in government after uh, Merkel steps down. Right, and if we focus on just the more uh, uh, recent time period and specifically after the 2017 federal race where uh, uh, the Greens came out of sixth uh, position with a, with a pretty uh, disappointing result, I'm sure. Uh, and, and, and going and going on from from then on, uh, it seems like you know one of the one of the the measures 
uh, one of the things that, that give you the measure of, of the, the mainstreaming of the Greens is that they're they're willing to to, co to coalition with to to uh, get into a coalition with parties, uh, you know, far to the center and even to the center right. Uh, unlike other uh, Green uh, parties in, in uh, elsewhere in Europe that are more traditionally anchored on sort of the hardcore progressive uh, issues of, of the left. And and I wonder uh, if you could maybe zero in on the the more the recent uh, five year uh, time period and, and give us a sense of what. Uh, you think uh, made the Greens so successful, and why do you think that a growing number of, uh, of, of, of voters in, in Germany are now willing to cast a vote for the Greens, even though that's not their tribal affiliation traditionally? I'm starting with Reinhardt and then turning back to, to Suda. To anyone who wants to describe the, the development of the Green Party as a unilinear process of moderation, I would object. Because, and, and our leaders say that to this very day, uh, the party insists on being radical in the original sense of the word. Being radical means, that, that's a, a Latin word, and it means going to the root of the issue. And we're not content with just uh, polishing uh, um, the uh, existing structures or uh, greening uh, what we have uh, on the outside, uh, we would probably call that greenwashing. Uh, we want to transform our societies. And we believe that what originally was considered a kind of post-materialist fancy of some city dwellers, well-educated, earning above the average, a bit weird, um, overly, uh, uh, overly uh, um, left-wing or whatever, has turned into the material precondition for a successful future of our societies. No serious human rights manager, uh, uh, sorry, uh, human resource manager today would ignore the paradigm, the imperative of dealing adequately with, with gender issues. Uh, a lot of business leaders today would tell you, just as I do, that to be successful in international competition in the future necessitates uh, an ambition to, to build competitiveness on the basis of sustainability. So sustainability is not the drawback, it's not the other side of the equation, it's the basis. And, and in, in this way, our thinking has um, uh, transformed a broader thinking in society. In, in 1986, uh, when, um, when uh, we had the, the terrible nuclear incident in, 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 in Chernobyl, that was the first time ever that the Greens represented a majority of the popular opinion in Germany. At that point, the public decided to go with us against nuclear, and that has held throughout all the years. And today, we represent majorities um, in, in popular opinion uh, on a much wider uh, uh, range of issues. So. Yes, we, we are not the, uh, the um, 
um, stone throwers uh, were, were not the uh, were not the, the the guys who who entertain radical rhetoric, but were not the the kind of the uh, people uh, that you might have in mind when you say moderate. We're, we're people who really think this society will only survive if it manages to transform itself. But there's the point. We are fully aware of the fact that this can only be done with majority support. There's no point in trying to be more radical than you can effectively be and still um, make changes. We have held the prime minister's office in the industrial state of Baden-Württemberg, uh, the uh, home of Daimler and Audi and, and Bosch and, and Porsche for the last 10 years. And step by step, not by sort of uh, entertaining uh, uh, flamboyant rhetoric, but by talking to people, by convincing partners, by, um, uh, by striking alliances, we have managed to increase the share of our votes to almost 33% in the last election. And today, the whole state is greener than I would have imagined it could ever be um, a couple of years ago. So, so what, what we have here is a party that has learned to hold fast to its original motivation, but also to reach out and to engage others and not just to um, wag fingers at others, not just to preach to others, but also to invite others to teach us how to find solutions. And the fact that we have relevant industrial leaders today saying that they think um, the Greens should play an important role in, in shaping future, uh, future uh, German um, uh, political uh, developments, it's not because they think we have uh, relented on our goals, but they they have been convinced that these goals are necessary. Um, Suda, a lot, a lot of the points Reinhard Maker are quite convincing, but there is nonetheless a fact that the Green Party in Germany seems to be a bit of an uh, anomaly in Europe because uh, there is no Green Party right now in Europe which is in a position like the German one. Um, some of them are junior partners in coalitions, some of them do quite well, but really have no shot at becoming uh, a governing party. Why is it that the German Greens, what makes the German Greens so special? Why are they so strong compared to their counterparts in the rest of Europe? Well, I guess I do want to um, go back to Reinhardt's point about moderation. I mean, certainly the Greens um, are allowed to campaign in poetry, but the nature of the system in Germany is that it's very um, consensus oriented um, and you do have to build a majority with other parties. So by nature, all the parties, when they um, build a government, have to um, come together and compromise. So over the years, I mean, the Greens have definitely learned to compromise on certain um, issues in their platform because they've, like Reinhardt said before, they don't want to be the eternal opposition party, but they want to govern. And, and I think that they have shown um, that they can do that. They can stick to their principles. 
but also be responsible in governing on a state level and a federal level. And that's why German voters trust them today. And not only has Germany, you know, um, been changed by the Green Party because um, it's been on the political scene for, um, you know, the lifetime of certain people such as Annalena Baerbock, but also, um, you know, the Greens have also been changed by Germany. And, you know, why are they so popular today? This is also, of course, due to outside factors. We've been in, Germany has experienced a grand coalition um, for three out of Merkel's uh, four terms. And part of it is also Merkel fatigue. The Greens offer something new after, um, six, it will be after 16 years of a grand or two um, catch-all parties in power for a very long time. And um, the Greens have also been very, very disciplined about changing up the leadership, offering fresh faces. And that is not necessarily been a strength of the catch-all parties in Germany specifically the center left and the center right. Hmm. Um, Reinhard, I'm going to poke you a little bit here, so feel free to push back. But there isn't just a kind of um, positioning evolution. There's also been, been very much a change in the electoral profile of the party. You talked about Baden-Württemberg. It's the home of uh, Audi and, and Porsche. It's also the home of uh, Wolfgang Schauble, the former arch-conservative uh, finance ministry, um, and as you said, it re-elected a Green Chancellor. On the contrary, the Greens seem to struggle a lot more in the kind of more working class eastern part of Germany. Um, we often said that the Greens are taking this leadership position on the left away from the SPD, the Social Democrats. But are the Greens the new Social Democrats or are they the new bourgeoisie, uh, Reinhard? Well, um, if you go and look at the figures um, for instance, uh, in the last regional election in the conservative state of Bavaria or in the formerly social democratic state of Hesse, you will find that we have been gaining votes both from the social democrats and from the conservatives, which is an interesting feature. Um, I, attractiveness is not restricted just to the, the progressive camp of uh, German politics. And um, our, our leader in Baden-Württemberg, um, uh, Winfried Kretschmann, even published a book under the title, I, I hope that uh, my, my quote is correct, but it's, it amounts to something like, what does conservatism mean today? And, and he portrays um, some of the green issues as a timely response and a timely interpretation of revered age-old principles. Like in Baden-Württemberg, uh, the law is that but people in Baden-Württemberg are very parsimonious. So they, uh, the Schwäbische Hausfrau always uh, uh, feels uneasy if she's asked to spend. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, a, a common, um, uh, common um, topic in, 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 in 
German political polemics. Uh, Kretschmann turned that around and said, look, if we are careful, if, if we avoid, want to avoid being spendthrift, shouldn't we also implement that conservative principle with regard of how we deal with nature? We should not increase a huge burden of debt, but, we, but neither should we increase environmental debt. And if hmm. we destroy the environment, well, somebody will have to pay up in the future, maybe not our generation, maybe the next generation, but there is no such thing as Milton Friedman would have said, there's no such thing as free CO2 emissions, as free um, uh, poisoning the water, as free poisoning the soil. So, so somebody has to be careful to be conservative. Nature conservation is uh, a con used to be a conservative issue, but we have mm -hmm. turned this conservative issue into a progressive issue. And that has allowed also conservative parts of the population to vote for us. In Baden-Württemberg, we not only dominate the university towns and the big cities, we also dominate the countryside. Out of 70 constituencies, we won 57 in the last election. And that includes strong voting um, uh, results uh, from uh, farming communities. So what, what we have managed to do is to bridge the gap somewhat between um, a conservative approach and the need to reform. Uh, we're, we're not trying to tell people, look, we reinvent the wheel. We reinvent the world from scratch. We say, let's turn our experience into an adequate answer to the challenges of today. There's a fascinating topic here. We should definitely do an episode maybe with Winfrey Krishman on this uh, nexus between conservatism and, and, uh, and green topics. Um, in the past years, there has been some growing frustration in many European capitals, least of all in Paris, of course, um, at the German reluctance to back projects for a more integrated European bloc. In a speech at a convention this weekend, Green co-leader Robert Habeck declared that Germany had benefited a lot from its EU membership. And if there was time for Germany to give back to the EU for public spending, a common EU debt instrument and many other instruments. But he says otherwise the EU could face major destabilization and the rise of populism. This position is quite radically radical and probably somewhat unpopular with German voters. But will the Germans be able to shake off Germany's preference for the status quo on European affairs? I mean, that's a good question. I think that all boils down to actually, you know, how risk ready are Germans um, after uh, 16 years of Merkel? I think there is definitely an appetite for change. And we've seen, as Reinhard pointed out, the Greens soaring in the polls. I mean, even during the state election in Bavaria a few years ago, mm -hmm. they did surprisingly well. Um, and you've seen successes on the state level, like in Baden-Württemberg. But on a federal level, are um, German voters really ready to have a green chancellor? And I think that question remains to be seen because most Germans would agree that yes, Germany is um, 
successful today because of the European Union. And uh, the European Union is an important pillar of German foreign policy. But then when it comes to actually, you know, writing the checks and spending the money, are Germans ready to do that? And they may think twice about voting for Greens, voting for the Greens who are looking for more, you know, of a collectivized um, financial structure or collectivized debt for the European Union to make it successful, to make Europe um, successful and whole. Um, and so I think that's sort of the conundrum. And on that note too, you know, I think that also speak, that also you have to think about um, um, defense as well. You know, the Greens are talking very stridently about um, facing up to challenges vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China. But you can have that strategic ambition, but what about the means? Are the Greens also ready to invest um, when it comes to 2% spending for NATO? Um, are they willing to also um, continue to have um, nuclear um, assets in Germany? These are things that where um, you can speak eloquently or speak in terms of um, facing up to those challenges for Europe, but are you also willing to go, you know, walk the walk? Reinhard, Germany has stood for status quo and foreign policy and European policy over past um, decades. Um, for Greens not too long ago were opposed to NATO, they were opposed to the uh, existence of a Bundeswehr, the party has changed a little bit, but what would a European and a foreign policy should the Greens be in power uh, come next September? What would that mean for Europe and for Germany's foreign policy? Well, certainly Greens will not be in government alone. Yes. We might lead a government. Probably that could only happen in a three-partite coalition with uh, the Social Democrats and the Liberals. Uh, or we might be possibly also a junior partner in government. There are several options, but in no one of these options would we be able to call the shots just by ourselves. So as Suda said before, uh, there is some uh, necessity to adhere to gradualism, to gradual transformation. On the other hand, we uh, have an increasing request, I would say, from many corners uh, of our country for not getting uh, sort of too much enamorated with patience. Um, we, there, there's a great need for, for major transformations. And you hear that from the business community, uh, most particularly. And I would say um, the, the the, the one issue that will decide the election will be, as you said, the, the, the change paradigm. And if we are perceived as pursuing change for change's sake, we'll not be successful. If we manage to uh, convince the public that our slogan, that change must be uh, enacted for the sake of stability. If we make them believe that we can do that, then we'll be winning. And um, that applies to European policies. We're obviously very pro-European. 
the the kind of policy that Merkel finally agreed to last year to finance the uh, recovery fund uh, um, based on uh, uh, shared European debt. That's a kind of policy we have been advocating for at least 10 years. Uh, so in a way, we have been ahead of the curve on many of those issues, but we're not out of sync completely. We are also a party, and Suda um, hinted at that, uh, that is uh, much more critical vis-a-vis -vis Russia or for that purpose vis-a-vis -vis China than most of the other parties. And, and we're, we're increasingly gaining support for that principled stance. Now, there, there are obviously uh, contradictions and one has just been mentioned, um, uh, Suda mentioned our nuclear skepticism and this is still prevailing and there's no point in denying that. But on the other hand, our party platform for the elections also says that we will not pursue unilateral action. We want to transcend uh, nuclear um, dimensions of defense strategy, but we will not go it alone. We will pursue that goal together with partners and allies. That's what's, uh, what's been clearly decided. And on defense, I think we know just as everybody does that Europe has to do more together to secure its own um, defense. However, we still dare to say that the 2% goal is not a meaningful measure for that. I mean, look at it from a practical perspective. The 2% goal implies if my economy goes down the drain, I need less security. But if my economy thrives, I need to buy more tanks. That doesn't make sense to anybody. So we want to focus on the capabilities that we need. And that has been clearly expressed. So I think we're fully prepared. We, we will be reliable. We know that Germany um, has to play ball with our transatlantic partners, with other like-minded countries, with um, uh, other democracies. We're very strongly in favor of uh, uh, making more efforts to let democracies have each other's back. So when, when China, for instance, tried to um, coerce economically countries like Australia, we think we should support them more. That's a, probably a new tone. Our leader said uh, we want to pursue dialogue, but also toughness vis-a-vis -vis authoritarian regimes. That's a new tone, but it's not a complete reinvention of, reinvention of Germany. Hmm. Thank you, Reinhardt, for this fantastic conclusion. Yeah. Okay, uh, what do you think of this episode on the German Greens, Francois? It's been a long time since we've been wanting to do an episode on Germany. I think the last one we did on Germany was uh, episode two with John Kampfner, um, the German way. And um, and I think we wanted to do one on Merkel, but didn't quite find the right time to do it. And I think I think now with the rise of the Greens, we really found a good opportunity to cover what's going on in Germany. Um, what I found really fascinating is the Greens have been around in most countries 
since the 1980s, um, late 1970s in some cases. I think of France, I think there was a presidential election, Maurice Lalonde in 1974, I could be wrong, 81 or 74. So they've been around for a long time. But the only one who has really managed to become this prominent is the German Green Party. And for me, it's really something that uh, makes me think, why is it that they've been so powerful? Could it just be circumstantial that the Social Democrats have been so, so weakened by uh, 12 years of coalition with Merkel and, and, and the, and the centre-right that there's nothing left out of it? Um, I also think, to a large extent, what something we talked a little bit about is how the German political system encourages parties or allows parties to build experience at the local level uh, within coalitions to an extent that is not really possible in other countries. Um, the Landers in, in Germany are really influential, really powerful, um, and Germany is a federal system, and uh, it's not quite as federal as the United States, but the Landers have a lot of influence, which is something which always strikes me as a bit puzzling for a French Jacobin as, uh, like myself. Um, and so what happens is the Greens have built coalitions in many of these states with different parties. You know, the, the Germans have uh, this wonderful tendency of giving uh, flag names to all the different coalitions that exist. The Jamaica uh, coalition is one with the, with the Liberals, the one with, um, uh, with the Greens and the um, and the uh, uh, CDU. So they've got all these different coalitions. And Greens have really been uh, enmeshed in many of these coalitions, built experience, sometimes more and more become the senior partner in that coalition. And I think that really helps to build the profile of a once fringe party into becoming a serious contender because people people know, okay, well, I have a Greens back in, in Baden-Württemberg and they've actually done okay with the finances. It's not a mess. They're not throwing, throwing stones at it every once in a while. Um, to just just to create havoc, and you know they've they've built they've burnished their credentials as a governing party. Yeah, and one one of the more striking things when you look at uh, the the broad spectrum of German persuasions um, seems like uh, I mean you, you could you could have you could have thought that the the reason for the Greens' rise uh, over over the, the last couple of decades is that there isn't uh, enough being done on the, on the environmental front. And that's why people are flocking to this party that has a really strong stance on uh, energy and, and just a general environmental conservation. But uh, you would be, you would be mistaken to think that in fact, the Greens as right is pretty, is pretty, um, uh, it, it tracks uh, the, the, the uh, general environmental uh, policies of the German state. So as the German state has become more, environmentally minded, the Greens have uh, risen accordingly. And so it's, it's uh, almost paradoxical to that extent. But, um, but then I think the, the, the general pitch to the voters uh, by the Green Party is, uh, is a prospective one. It's one that says that there's a lot more that could be done even, even after Germany is a post, uh, has become a post-nuclear state that is primarily reliant on, on cleaner forms of energy than is the case elsewhere in Europe. But the, the pitch by the Greens is a prospective one. It, it's about uh, you know building a sort of a greener society even and, and having a sort of a broader spectrum of issues that the greens are um, are, are, are have an edge on including some of the some of the ones that uh, Reinhardt mentioned like uh, gender issues and general progressive bread and butter uh, topics so so um, so yeah I think I think on, on one side I was really struck by the um, by the fact that the greens are, most powerful in the in the country that is already the greenest or one of the greenest in Europe, uh, and then by the fact that it's not necessarily the kind of and narrowly uh, 
ecological party that that you that you see in other parts of Europe. I mean, the Greens in Spain are, are really a fringe party, for instance, and that's primarily due to their to the narrow scope of their policy focus. They really are just um, exclusively a, a green party, and they they're the the. It seems like the, the Greens in Germany have uh, kind of the momentum going. Um, across the whole spectrum of progressive uh, right. policy uh, priorities. In, in, in France, I don't think the Green Party is, is only focused on, on green matters. It's often uh, lovingly nicknamed the, the watermelon party, green outside, red inside. So that's often the joke for the French Greens. But I want to go back on the question of energy. In, in I think the, the optics of Germany is that it is a very green state and uh, they recycle and they do all these things. But on energy... I really want to push back on this because um, following the Fukushima disaster, um, there was actually a surge in, in support for the Green Party, which Merkel really handled quite cleverly and, and said she, that would, they would uh, end the nuclear programs quite quickly and whatnot. But what that has meant since is that Germany is very reliant not just on its renewable energies, but also on other sources of energies, depending on the circumstances. Because I saw this graphic the other day, it was like um, 8 p.m. in in Central Europe. Um, there was not much wind and no no sun because it was 8 p.m. And it showed that Germany was essentially importing all of its energy at that moment from the rest of Europe and from France and its nuclear energy. So there's a bit of hypocrisy here, but also from Poland and its coal energy. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm nowhere an expert on on, on, on nuclear energy and, and, and other forms of energy, but... It seems to me that there's been a bit of a, of a dogma um, in Germany, not just from the Greens, on nuclear energy, because you know, nuclear energy is bad, Fukushima, uh, Chernobyl. But as a result, it means that the French are essentially exporting their energy to the rest of Europe because they have a reliable system which works 24-7. And, the, and, and when there's no wind, when there is no sun, uh, the Germans are completely dependent on just not just uh, not only nuclear energy, but also much more polluting forms of energy like uh, like the ones you, you have in, in, in Eastern Europe, for example. So I think that that's something which is a bit of um, uh, a chink in the armor of a, of a green credentials of, uh, of Germany, which is, in reality, you're depending a lot on, on sources you, you, you say you oppose. Yeah, and, and um, to some extent, that's, uh, you, that, that could be expected. I mean, um, the, the, the problem, right, with uh, transitioning towards uh, a net zero uh Economy is that uh, you know then then the the energy that feeds into the grid is mostly um, it's it's not reliable right it's less, less reliable than other sorts of en- sources of energy and the fact that we've got a grid that has been uh, connected across borders uh, in, in many countries particularly Germany with uh, with its neighbors means that Germany is able to tap into the the energy production from nearby countries for instance primarily poland has a huge energy conflict with germany from what i understand even as germany uh condemns poland's uh, reliance on coal it then is uh, it, it, it's it's uh, only too happy to be able to tap into some of the energy surplus that comes from having coal production uh because the the, the non-fossil fuel uh, uh sources are you know again they the uh, the sun is not shining uh, the year, year round and the, the wind is uh, is just as unreliable. So when though in those um, uh, vacuums of, of energy, then uh, Germany is able through its grid, which is plugged uh, into the one in nearby countries, it's able to fill uh, the, the gaps uh, with the, the energy produced uh, in other countries that don't have 
as stringent an environmental policy. So that's that's certainly a... we 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 should do an, an episode. We, we've been thinking about it actually doing an episode on on kind of European energy policy and the conflict between France and Germany, Germany and Poland, and all of that. I think that'd be an interesting episode. We should do um, um, at, at some point. Which also makes me think about the, um, what Reinhardt said about how essentially environmentalism and ecology is a conservative ideology in the first place. And Vavre Greens took it from them. He pretty much said it textbook at some point. I thought it was, it was a pretty, pretty brilliant passage. And he, I, 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 to be honest, I hadn't heard of this book by um, Winfried Kreschmann, the minister president of uh, Baden-Württemberg. But it's really interesting, the, the kind of fundamentally conservative ethos of, of, of the green movement somehow um, is one which I'm sure we could do a great episode with Winfried Krishman and maybe, you know, um, some kind of right-wing intellectual or, you know, François-Xavier Bellamy or something. I have a really interesting episode on, on the, um, is, is environmentalism a conservative cause? I think that'd be a fantastic episode. Um, I, I also want to, to bounce back on, on foreign policy a little bit because there's been a lot of, a lot of headlines over the past weeks about how the Greens want to take have a more forceful foreign policy uh, on, 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 especially on Russia and Nord Stream 2 and whatnot. Um, they, they want to end the project, which uh, I don't think we'll be able to, given the project is pretty much ended, uh, pretty much finished at this point. But, um, but what I think interests me is for Greens used to be opposed to the very existence of Bundeswehr. They said we shouldn't have that. It's too dangerous. Um, you know, we, we, we can't, we can't be, we can't afford Travis power and we don't want to be militaristic. Now they've changed and they said, well, essentially we want our army only to be used in, um, if it is a, uh, UN operation. And so it's the only the only environment in which we think the Bundeswehr would be legitimate to intervene outside of its borders. But what that means de facto is you're giving a veto to Russia and in China on your on, on the use of your military. So it's quite it's quite it's quite contradictory that you have a a party which is claiming it wants a much more forceful policy, but is also de facto allowing China and, and Russia to have a veto on its foreign policy. I think you know. Um, I think that's something that's going to have to get these contradictions will have to be ironed out, uh, hopefully before before the, the election. Um, but if they aren't, there's going to be a source of much tension within the within not only the Green Party because the Green Party had major infightings in the early 2000s over foreign policy in in, in the in the Balkan regions and and whatnot. It really caused a massive splintering of a party. Um, but also with their coalition partners, you know, it's not going to be easy. The uh, the SPD, the Social Democrats. The, the centre-right um, Christian Democrats are much more uh, careful. They don't want to rock the boat too much. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that um, how that works out, how that plays out. Yeah, and I think generally, uh, I mean, the, the question you asked was was about the Greens' moderating effect on Germany's foreign policy. And I think the, the kind of the hidden variable there is that the other parties aren't uh, very hawkish uh, to start with either. I mean, there, there, there just isn't a very hawkish uh, uh, foreign policy hawkish party in, in Germany. I mean, the general consensus is towards uh, NATO underspending, uh, a pretty uh, accommodative, accommodative uh, uh, strategic stance towards uh, at least China primarily. I mean, we think of Germany's role in, in uh, brokering the, uh, the investment agreement that we, uh, that we covered with Reinhardt uh, uh, several episodes ago. And Russia is kind of a different matter. I think Russia is more of a... Uh, uh, an opportunity to grandstand for for a center right and center left parties across Europe. It's a it's an opportunity to to showcase the sort of the the ethos of European foreign policy, whilst not incurring uh, a lot of the the, the kind of the, um, the the costs of, of an actual uh, 
you know, hefty sanctions policy. I think it's it's more it's more symbolic than than anything else. But yeah, I mean, I think the German. I mean, to the extent the Greens have had a moderating effect, they've they've uh, moderated a policy that is already very moderate. So um, so I think that was um, that perhaps wasn't so much reflected in in uh, in uh, Reinhardt's answer. Uh, but it is it is an interesting history in terms of the the anti uh, militaristic, as they call it. The Greens have a story of have a history of. Of, um, of uh, describing uh, defense spending as militarism, as the idea that you're, you've got um, you've got a defense policy that serves the purposes of the Cold War, and then we should uh, move towards a world of uh, disarmed uh, nations and uh, kind of a, a focus a diplomacy on non-proliferation agreements, uh, as opposed to sort of dissuasive uh, uh, you know policy instruments. And I think. Um, I mean, Reinhardt made a couple of, uh, of uh, uh, astute points in terms of, well, what, what, is, the, what is the use of this 2% spending target when it comes to NATO, right? NATO, uh, for NATO members are required year on year to invest 2% of their GDP on their national defense. And the, the, the point that Reinhardt raised was, I think, really astute. And it, it even comes up in uh, U.S. Uh, national security debates as well. Sometimes, you know, the focus should be not so much on the gross, um, kind of the, the gross um, uh, uh, spending top line, right? The money that, that, that a country spends uh, the, the, on, on its defense, it should be focused on what kind of capabilities are being built. And on one side, that kind of argument helps the Greens because it, it allows it to say, well, you know, we're, we're investing in all these sort of the hard artillery and the, the, the outdated, uh, you know, um, military equipment that, that was uh, used in sort of wars of the past and we should move towards uh, kind of a um uh, i think they call it these days um non-kinetic warfare uh, tools um but but on the other hand i think it also helps the hawks i mean the hawks want to have what really want to focus on on maximizing capabilities even even uh, even at the expense of a higher top line they're they're ready to compromise some of the less effective uh spending uh if, if it allows uh, if, if it allows the country to move towards a more uh, a more uh, capable uh, military, uh, more generally. So, so it's a, it's, it's certainly a, an interesting uh, conundrum there. Yeah. Uh, if, before we go, I was uh, I researched a bit Reinhard before before. Well, we already had him uh, for episode fourteen with uh, François Guénon on, on China, but I hadn't realized how deep he was in this kind of counterculture movement. Um, he was one of the K groups, the the so-called, uh, I'm not going to say in German, I'm not even going to try, but the Maoist Communist League of West Germany. So, you know, he was pretty deep into that kind of counterculture. And he's such a good representative of this kind of evolution of a party. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been great to have him. Uh, he's been fantastic and it's great to have Suda. And we're so glad all of you could come. Um, please stay tuned. We've got some really great episodes coming up. Uh, we're really excited to share them with you. Um, so please stay tuned. If you're on Spotify, you can subscribe. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you can rate and review, um, share the word with a friend. All these small things really help the show grow. And I'm so happy to be doing this. And anyways, see you next week.